And for the rest of you, we, we are finishing up uh, the book of Daniel this morning. I pray that it has been as encouraging to you as it has been to me. But if you need a Bible, love for you to raise your hand and someone will bring you a Bible. We are going to be in chapter 12 of the book of Daniel. We're going to be starting in verse 5 to the end. Um, I, uh, I love words. I've just kind of always loved words. And I love words so much that I and my wife always makes fun of me for this, but I make up words like all the time. I love just like taking two words, kind of dividing them and then pushing them together and making new meanings. And one word that I wish I would have invented, created, is the word eucatastrophe. Uh, Tolkien actually is the person, I think, um, who invented that word. So catastrophe, you know, something bad that happens, and then EU, the Greek prefix for it, meaning good. So this is a good catastrophe, a eucatastrophe. And this word, he, he plays with that theme of eucatastrophe all throughout his writings. Um, I've been listening to the Lord of the Rings, so just give me this. This, is, you can, this will be my Christmas present to me, just this, uh, this introduction. So in the two towers, in the Lord of the Rings, you have this famous battle of the Battle of Helm's Deep. And it is a horrific battle. And all seems lost in this battle as the orc army is just, you know, um, penetrating every defensive line. And when the heroes are at, you know, at the end, when it seems insurmountable, when inevitably they are going to lose, when darkness and gloom is just covering the entire field of battle, you've got the heroes, they ride out to battle with their swords in their hands. They're riding out to their inevitable death. It's gloomy. It's dark. Darkness has won. And as they do, all of a sudden, Gimli, that lovable dwarf, he turns to Aragon and says, Look, the sun is rising. It's kind of odd. You're like, well, that's a great observation. You're about to die. Why don't you focus on some orcs? But he does. He, he looks because what he's saying there is he's remembering something that the wizard Gandalf talked about. That on the fifth day, look to the east as the sun is rising and I will be there. And so Gimli says, look, the sun is rising. And then Aragon and all the heroes, they look to the east and they see a horse. Shadowfax. And Gandalf riding. And with him, an army from Rohan who come to their aid and rescue them. That's eucatastrophe, right? At its darkest, its bleakest, when all seems lost, right then, you turn on the lights. That's what Tolkien does all the time. It's a good catastrophe. It's a eucatastrophe. Now, we have lots of these eucatastrophes. I think the, one of the greatest eucatastrophes is Christmas. Um, I think the thing that will kill Christmas fastest in our world is sentimentality. Uh, there is nothing really sentimental about Christmas. When you really read the story, when you read the text, when you're reading in the gospel accounts that the nature of the incarnation of God in Christ, when you read it, you realize there's not much sentimental about it. It is a eucatastrophe. So you've got Joseph, and he finds out that his engaged, you know, the, the woman he's 
betrothed to, engaged to, is pregnant. Awkward. Dark. Just imagine that in our culture, let alone the culture 2,000 years ago. Then you have Mary, and she now has to travel pregnant far from home. She's going to spend her honeymoon in a barn. And all this is under an edict from a king who says, I'm going to murder all the infants under a certain age. Such that Mary and Joseph and the soon-to-be-born Jesus will have to escape to Egypt in order to evade this edict. I mean, talk about gloom and doom. Talk about darkness. Talk about a catastrophe And yet it's under the guise of this catastrophe, under the the context, in the midst of this catastrophe, that the light of the world shines into the darkness, right? The Christmas story is a eucatastrophe. It's at this time, the, the, the darkness of Advent, that the seed of David shines forth. Where the Savior of the world will be born to die, and die to be reborn. Advent, Christmas, it's a catastrophe. It's, it's maybe perhaps the best catastrophe, maybe next to the crucifixion, right? Christmas and Easter are great catastrophes. But they're not the onlys. Actually, when you think of the Bible, and most stories in the Bible, God loves stories of catastrophe, right? Like when all seems bleak, when, when all seems lost, God just shows up just at the nick of time. My guess is that if we told many stories in our lives, we could have a lot of eucatastrophes, right? When all seemed lost, when all seemed gloomy, when all seemed as if it was lost, that's when God, just in the nick of time, shows up to rescue. And that's how the book of Daniel ends. It doesn't end with, and they all lived happily ever after. It doesn't end with, you know, Daniel just having this great success at the end. No, it doesn't. It actually ends with a catastrophe that is reframed by God in good terms. Daniel 12 ends in a sort of gloom, bleak, dark. But in the midst of it, in the context of that darkness, there is amazing truth that shines forth. That as God's people are going to suffer, and we've seen this kind of theme over and over again, you know, the book of Daniel is in one sense a book prophetically to encourage the church towards faithfulness to God, to thrive and survive in, in the Babylon of our worlds. That in the midst of, of surviving and thriving, the book of Daniel comes to us reminding us to be faithful to God, to endure. And so in the bleakness of this book is a great reminder that And here's the big idea behind us. This is how it's going to end. In one sense, the book of Daniel is a beautiful bookend from chapter 1 to chapter 12. That in light of the inevitable suffering of God's people, we're called to patiently endure. So look look at, starting in verse 5, we're going to read verse 5 to the end of the book of Daniel. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, 
How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, time, and a half a times. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy peoples come to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arise arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way to the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. So, chapter 12, it really is structured, verses 5 to verse, verse 13, by two questions. Two questions. One that an angelic being asks, and then one that Daniel asks. But these questions are framed in the context of this vision from chapter 10 and 11 and partially of chapter 12. So just kind of to summarize, in chapter 10, you have this vision that Daniel gets of this great heavenly battle that's going on, that that between the, the battles of the kingdoms on earth, behind those things are actually a heavenly battle for the hearts and minds of humanity. And then you get into chapter 11 and you see this glorious vision of, of not just these, these, this heavenly battle, but these earthly battles waging war. And Daniel's told that there's going to be a battle against God's people. But in the midst of the suffering and persecution of God's people at all times and at all places, that there is a hope of a resurrection. That's the beginning of chapter 12. And so in light of this, in in light of this suffering, this persecution that's going to happen upon God's people, we've got some questions that arise. So we see there in verse 5, it says if Daniel sort of like blinks and, and he's no longer in the future and he's no longer in the heavens, he's now back at the Tigris River where he started back in chapter 10. And he then hears or first he sees two more angelic beings, one on either side of this river. And they ask a question. They ask it in verse 6. The question is this. The question is, how long shall it be till the end of the wonders? So that's, that's the first question. Now, this angel doesn't ask, okay, when is this going to happen? That's what we would ask, right? That's not what this angelic being asks this other angel that was giving the vision to Daniel. He also doesn't ask him why. Like, why is this happening on God's people? Why so much hardship? Why so much suffering? Why not just instantly bring in Eden right now? Instead, this angelic being asks this other angelic being, how long are God's people going to suffer. It's as if this angelic being is like, 
eavesdropping on this vision, hearing it, and welling up his love for God's people. And they're just asking, how long are they going to have to suffer? How long are they going to have to endure? How long will they be persecuted? In in light of suffering, when you love someone and you see them suffer, the inevitable question that arises out of the human heart is always, how long? Is it not? You, you see someone on hospice, is, not the, is that not the question that rises up? How long? You, you have a child that's suffering or, or, or walking away from God and you, as a parent, just well up with the question, how long? You walk with someone in mental illness? You see relationships break apart and inevitably love compels us to ask that most fundamental of questions. How long? How long will this go on and on? And so it says, if this angel is seeing this vision or hearing of this vision and understands it enough to ask this sort of million dollar question, how long is this going to take place? How long will God's people need to endure under the suffering of this world? So this angelic being asks this other angelic being that question. And verse 7, he gets a response. The angelic host, did you notice, raises his right hand and then his left hand. Now what is he doing? Well, he's taking an oath, is he not? Right, we still do this today, right? When you take an oath, you raise your right hand and say, I, tell, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Well, that's what this angel is doing. Only he's doing it with both hands, kind of ratcheting up the severity of this oath. He is about to tell the whole truth, and if this is wrong, may God himself strike down this angel. So he raises both hands. He's bound by God to tell the truth. As it relates to the question of how long the answer is given, For a time, times, and half a time. (sighs) Now, we've seen this before, haven't we? This sort of vague answer to this very specific question. We saw it in chapter 7. Time, times, and a half a times, which many interpret as three and a half years. It's a vague question. I don't know, sometimes my, my kids will ask a very specific question and I don't want to give them a specific answer, so I give them a vague answer. That's what it almost feels like is going on here. But one thing we do know about this time period is that it is a limited amount of time. We can have lots of debates on what this, this time, time and a half a time, but what we do know is that it is within God's sovereign purposes, within his control, it is a limited amount of time in which God's people will suffer in this world at the hands of Satan and sin and the world for a time, times, and half a time. And then we notice that it says, and when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things will be finished. Now that's an odd thing. Because in many ways, what we might think is that when the church is going well, or when God's people are flourishing or thriving, that's when God's going to come back. But here, it's the exact opposite. This is why I'm not a post-millennialist. 
it's texts like this that just don't, don't make sense to me. Because here it says that it's the exact opposite. That Christ will come back at the end of time, not when everything is going great, not when the kingdom and the gospel just triumphs over every nation, but in many ways, when it gets worse and worse. Yes, it's going to go to the, all the nations. They are, all the nations are listed in uh, the book of Revelation as worshiping God. And yet, at the same time, when society isn't very moral, when all seems bleak, when the world gets darker and darker, when the kingdom of darkness seems to be beating the kingdom of God, that's when you know the end is about to come. That's the eucatastrophe, isn't it? That as God's people suffer, as they seem to be losing, as the church seems to look weaker and weaker, that's when Christ returns. Just like at the Battle of Helm's Deep, just when all was lost, that's when they see Gandalf riding on a steed. And just when all looks lost, that's when we'll see Jesus riding on his steed, his white horse, in triumph. And so, to the question of how long, how long until the kingdom isn't just consummated with Christ's first advent, but when is it, or not, not when it's just inaugurated, but consummated, when will that take place? And the angel is telling Daniel and us, it's going to be a minute. To preserve for a little while, for a short period of time. Now, there's, an, there's another question that comes, but before this second question that kind of is elicited from Daniel in response to this, I love what Daniel, what we read that happens to Daniel in verse 8. It says, as for me, that's Daniel, I heard, I couldn't understand. Um, I, I remember I, when I was 20 and I was in college, uh, a friend and I got into science fiction. We are just like science fiction movies, books, we were just eating all of it up. And so um, I remember my uh, college said that they were going to have this elective in black holes. And I was like, oh, that's going to be so cool. But there's a problem. I was an English major, and this was a physics class. But I wanted to take this class because I liked Dune. So I went to the physics department, and I begged them to let me take this class. And for some reason, I convinced them. I have no idea how I did it. And they said, sure, you could take this class. And so I applied, you know, I, I, uh, I got in and all of a sudden I get my textbook and I read my textbook. I read the first page and then I read like the first chapter and I put it down and I go, I'm dropping this class. <laughs> Made no sense to me at all. That's the idea of Daniel here, right? Daniel gets this vision. He then gets some level of interpretation and he's like, this is as foreign as black holes to me. I have no idea what's going on here. He heard but he didn't understand. So he asks his question. He says, Oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? Now this is a different flavor of a question than the angel asks. Daniel here is just asking like, can you, can you help unravel or untie this knot? Like, what, what, is, what does this mean for us? 
explain what's happening because it looks like what you're saying is that we're not going to make it. This reminds me of Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel asks a very interesting question. He gets this vision in the book of Ezekiel. And in chapter 10 and 11, he gets this horrific vision from God about God's judgment coming on God's people for their idolatry. And it's a horrific vision. And he steps back, seeing it all, seeing the, the expanse of God's judgment on wickedness and evil and on God's people. And he says, are any in the remnant going to survive? It just looks like everyone's going to not make it. That's what it seems like here. That Daniel's asking, oh, are we going to make it? In light of this vision, in light of the suffering, in light of the persecution to come, is anyone of God's people actually going to endure and make it? Daniel's desperate, I think, at this point. That's why he asks this question, and so he gets a response. Verse 9, he says, go your way, which is sort of polite and sort of not polite. Actually, if you, you see there, uh, this angelic being says it twice in verse 9 and verse 13. Actually, this whole kind of question is framed by this angel saying, get out of here. Right? Uh, sometimes my wife and I will be having a conversation, like an intense, like, you know, adult conversation. And I, I, one of my children will be like listening and will say, get out of here. This is not for you to overhear, right? You're not mature enough or ready to hear kind of the things that we're talking about. That's what it seems like is going on here. Daniel asks, like, hey, can I be on the inside? Can I, can I have an adult conversation? And the angel's like, you can't have an adult conversation. You're not mature enough and ready enough to actually know the answer in some level of detail to the question you're asking. So he says, get out of here. Go. And then he's told, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Daniel, you're not ready. We're going to seal up these words. And then he finds out, verse 10, something that Daniel is to know. There's many things that he's not meant to know, but something he is meant to know in verse 10 is that many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall continue or act wickedly. So what he does need to know is that there's going to be two groups of people forever. Those who are purified by God and those who are wicked, those who continue to faithfully serve and walk and follow God and those who faithfully decide to turn their back on God. That's what Daniel needs to know. So no matter what happens, God will protect and endure and and persevere his people but not everyone will continue in their faithfulness to God. So though there's a lot Daniel doesn't know, though there's a lot that is excluded from what Daniel can know, there's a lot that is sealed up, there is something more interesting that sort of the ending of this book wants us and wants to sort of remind us of because this is a theme that comes up over and over and over again which we see in verse 12. I I think it's captured by a four-letter word. It's a dirty four-letter word. It's a bad four-letter word. Wait, right? I think that's like the worst word. Wait. He's told at the very end, in light of this vision, 
Wait. Blessed is he who waits. Yeah, I know that's five letters, but it works better if it's four, right? Blessed is he who waits. And then we get the inevitable weirdness of how long Daniel's supposed to wait for 1,335 days. Now, once again, we have a sort of conundrum. In the book of Daniel, there are at least three sets of numbers. So in chapter 8, you have 2,300, but it says morning and evening sacrifices, so you actually have to divide that by half, and you get 1,000. I, I, did, I did a math on my calculator, so 1,150, right? So that's the kind of the first number in chapter 8. Then in chapter 11, we have 1,290 days. Then in chapter 12, 1,335 days. I mean, come on. All these numbers, I mean, this is why I wasn't a math major. So what is going on here? Now, there's a lot of debate on what these numbers correspond to. But let me just point out, symbolically, what we can all agree on is the number is increasing. Starts off at 1,200 days, roughly, and then you're, you're or 1,100 days, then 1,200, and then 1,300 days. So symbolically, what this is communicating to Daniel and to all of us is that you're supposed to endure patiently, that you're to persevere patiently, that you are to wait longer. And then when you cross the finish line on longer, a little bit longer. And then when you cross the finish line of a little bit longer, a little bit, little bit longer. That's what Daniel reminds us. Uh, when I take road trips, I do this with my kids all the time. They say, how long? And I go, a little bit longer. And it's like eight hours. They don't know that a little bit longer is a little bit longer than they think it is. And that's what God is reminding us. That we are to endure patiently a little bit longer, and then a little bit longer, and then a little bit longer, and then a little bit longer, and be faithful to God. Or, not just a car trip, but another analogy, it's like running. I know some of you ran a half marathon, some of you are weird and crazy, and some of you did that yesterday. But, but, I, but I know this, that when you go on a run, you trick yourself, and you talk to yourself, and you're like, okay, I'm on a mile six of 13, but I just go, oh, it's just a little bit longer. And so in the midst of the pain and suffering, when you're seeking to endure it, you just lie to yourself a little bit and say, just a little bit longer. And so Daniel comes to us and reminds us that as it relates to our faithfulness in the church, regardless of the temperature of the world against the church, we are to be faithful and to wait patiently a little bit and a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. I think the perfect kind of New Testament companion uh, text is Matthew 24. And in many ways, the, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in our corporate scripture reading all throughout the book of Daniel, we reference Matthew 24 a lot. There's a lot of parallels and connection between what happens in the Gospel of Matthew in the uh, 24th chapter and its connection with Daniel, uh, the, the entire book of Daniel. But particularly as it relates to us, go to, now I want you to see this, go to Matthew 24. And we're going to start reading Matthew 24 and verse 42. He gives an sort of an exhortation and then there's a parable and the parable 
is a sort of a perfect New Testament illustration of what Daniel is getting at in this last chapter. Matthew 24, verse 42. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if your master, that if the master of the house had, th- had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him to pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that day there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here you have Jesus giving sort of a couple um, parables, but both of the same idea, which is that there are righteous servants and unrighteous servants. But, but for both, the context is this, is that the master is late. Or maybe the master isn't late, but he's not arriving when they expect. And so the question is, as you serve God and you think, oh, God's going to just come right around the corner. I mean, I'm seeing what's going on in the Middle East. I'm not, I'm not seeing, so it's, it's got to be coming soon. So, and he's saying, no, no, no. The faithful servant is one who even if it looks like the Lord is tearing, even if it looks like God isn't coming and arriving, the faithful servant is he or she who faithfully endures and waits in eager expectation. I, I got a dog during COVID, and I, I've, I always use my dog negatively. Here's the first time, and this is my Christmas present to my dog. Here's a positive illustration about my dog. My dog... When we try to leave, like when my family leaves, my dog tries to jump out of the house or run out of the house and get in the car. Like my dog has codependency issues. Um, But when we leave, my dog, we see as we're pulling out of the driveway, we see the dog looking out the front window. And when we arrive, the dog is at the garage just waiting with eager expectation. Like my dog is a perfect illustration about how all of us are supposed to live in light of God's return. To be faithful to endure, and to wait. Though we don't know exactly when, just like my dog doesn't know exactly when we're going to return, we are to wait in similar fashion, just awaiting for God to return. And here at the end of Daniel, we have this amazing text, verse 13. But go your way until the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Go Wait, rest. Go, wait, rest. Go, wait, rest. That's how the book of Daniel ends. Isn't that like a description of the Christian life? Going, living your life, faithful to God. Waiting on God to answer your prayers in either yes, no, or not yet. Waiting for his resurrection waiting for his second coming, going, waiting, and then at the end of time, at his coming, 
or our death, resting, go, wait, rest. And isn't the backdrop of our going and our waiting and our resting the context of sin and darkness and brokenness? We live in a eucatastrophe, a good catastrophe, because God is taking all the darkness, all the brokenness, and he has conquered it and is conquering it. Tolkien describes uh, one of my favorite characters this way, which I think sums up how we are to respond to the story that we find ourselves in, this sort of eucatastrophe that we find ourselves in. He describes Gandalf, the wizard, this way. In the wizard's face, he saw at first only lines of care and lines of sorrow. Though as he looked more intently, he perceived that under all the pain and sorrow was great joy. A fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom to laughing were it to ever gush out. Oh, if I could write like that. But isn't that sort of the Christian response to the eucatastrophe that we find ourselves in? We are sorrowful yet ever rejoicing. We are weak yet not crushed. We are sad in light of our sin, in light of the world we find ourselves in, and yet we are still laughing. That if you prick a Christian, should they not just well out with laughing at the resurrection? I mean, you tell the story of Christianity to a kid. I mean, I, I, I did this. I, I was I told uh, I was in children's ministry a couple years ago, and I was telling the Christian story, the, the Christmas story, uh, to um, a, 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 this kid. He was like six years old, and I just went and kind of theological truth after theological truth, and he goes. That can't be true. And I was just laughing. He was laughing at this absurdity of this, that God is making all things new. And yes, I wanted him to say, oh yeah, that's, you know, you know surrender to that truth. But, but there was a, a sense in which he was responding rightly to this thing. Like our world is absurd in the most natural sense and the most glorious sense because God is bringing such gladness and joy and goodness and love out of so much darkness and sin and brokenness such that we are sorrowful. I mean, there are many things when I think of this life and this Christmas that are sad. Like every Christmas, my grandfather and I, who passed away a couple years ago, we would sit down and he would send me um, college football games and then I would pick and we'd bet a quarter for every college football bowl game. And I loved it. I won every year. It was fantastic. (laughs) I would get a little, I would always get like a $3 or $4. It was fantastic. I started when I was like in first grade. And I was looking at the bull schedule and I just was like, oh, it was just a reminder that this Christmas, that tradition is gone. I don't get to do that with my grand, grandparent, my grandfather. And yet in the midst of sorrow, not being with people, there's joy. We can be like Gandalf. Christmas isn't sentimental. There, there is a darkness to it, and yet there is so much goodness bursting out of Christmas. Daniel ends this way. Blessed is he who waits. Blessed is he who, who waits and arrives at the end. Blessed is he who shall rest and stand at your allotted place at the end of times. Daniel's great hope was that he would stand 
at his allotted place next to Christ and hear, well done, my faithful servant. You were faithful. You endured. You walked with me in the fire for his friends, in the lion's den for Daniel. I don't know in 2024. Is that right? 2024, is that next year? 2023, oh gosh. I don't even know. COVID years were hard years on me, all right? (laughs) Whatever next year is. None of us know exactly what's right around the corner. But I can prophetically say this, that the calling of Daniel is to endure patiently, to wait patiently a little bit longer. And then a little bit longer. And then whatever the world, the flesh, or the devil throws at you, a little bit longer. And a little bit longer. And to do so in community and to encourage one another towards that end. And to remind each other that at the end of time, it will all be worth it. Lord, we, um, we, we, we know that we can't do this Christian life alone, that we need one another. We need one another to point one another to the hope of the gospel, to remind us when we're being unfaithful and to encourage us to greater acts of faithfulness. Lord, we pray that this Christmas season, that in the backdrop of darkness, we would see the goodness of your gospel, the goodness of Jesus, and that we would worship him in greater joy, even in our individual suffering and sadness and sorrow. And we pray all that in your son's name. Amen.